This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, November the 7th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today... A conversation about literature, a new novel explores concepts of accessible design and the social model of disability. Author Kat Gordon tells you all about her latest book, Season 1, Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. Here's a question for you. How sustainable is pet food? Lawrence Gunther gives you a glance into the manufacturing process of food for your furry friends. Plus, how do you choose the right university that suits your needs? Community reporter Anna Kim shares her firsthand experience. Lots coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. The top story of the day continued political squabbling over the carbon tax. The federal conservatives put forward a motion in parliament. The motion called for an exemption of all home heating from the carbon tax. The motion was defeated. The NDP supported the conservative plan. The Bloc Québécois opposed it. Here's what conservative leader Pierre Polyev had to say about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau getting support from the Bloc He's now signed on with the separatists to divide Canadians into two separate classes. Those who will have to pay carbon tax on their home heat and a small minority who will get a pause from the pain. Polyev is already looking to the future around the carbon tax. So with today's vote and with his hide and divide strategy, Justin Trudeau has set us up for the carbon tax election. We don't know when it will come, but it will happen. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh thinks both the Liberals and Conservatives are off base with their carbon pricing mechanisms. Clearly, this is divisive. They meant it to be divisive, and we're rejecting that. We think that's ridiculous. But we also uh, reject the ridiculous approach of the Conservatives, who don't even have a plan to deal with one of the biggest worries on Canadians' minds, Singh was asked how he felt about supporting the Conservative motion. I'm always very uncomfortable in any moment where I'm seen in any way voting alongside the Conservatives because they are a party that is opposed to taking on corporate greed. They're a party that continues to help the super rich at a time when Canadians, working class people need help, and they don't have a plan to tackle the climate crisis. So I'm always reluctant to vote alongside the Conservatives in any way. The carbon tax was also top of mind at the Premier's meeting in Nova Scotia. Here's Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. I think everyone uh, largely is in, in agreement that it, the, the policy is being unfairly implemented across the nation. Um, there's disagreements on it, you know, what the correct climate change policy is, but when it comes to fairness, uh, the federal government has certainly crossed the line. How about Ontario Premier Doug Ford's perspective? When you're adding 14 cents a litre, on, on gas, uh, that says it all. Not mentioning making sure we have fairness 
Uh, you, you can't pit Canadians against Canadians. Manitoba Premier Wab Canoe also acknowledged the pause for certain heating products in certain regions is unfair. The temperatures are getting colder. It's probably not going to surprise any of my colleagues to hear that we've already had snow on the ground in Manitoba. But uh, in light of that, we do think that there should be a similar consideration given to the people of Manitoba to get us through this uh, period of economic pain. BC Premier David Eby has previously said he finds this new carbon pause policy unfair, but Eby did explicitly endorse the carbon tax as a policy. Uh, for us, the carbon tax has been an effective mechanism to re reduce carbon pollution. Since 2017, our emissions have gone down despite a dramatic increase in population. And since the inception of the carbon tax, we've seen those kinds of impact. One more note to come out of the Premier's meeting. Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston wants a big sit-down with the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister has not convened uh, a full in-person First Minister's meeting since uh, 2018. Uh, so we uh, again reiterate our call for a First Minister's meeting. That's probably a fair position to say they have not had a chance to meet in person since 2018. I don't want to be this person who screams that the pandemic is over, but... Certainly the pandemic is uh, a little bit in the rearview mirror, hanging out on the sidelines. Probably makes sense to get all of the premiers and prime minister together for a first minister's meeting uh, in person. Let's try and do that before the end of the year. You got a couple weeks, see what you can do. Let's get from politics to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked a question that obviously has nothing to do with politics. Certainly, housing and politics never, ever, ever intersect. I apologize for the sarcasm. Are you considering moving due to the cost of housing? 29% of you said yes. 71% of you said no. Andrea says, no, we own our home, so it is very economical living for us. Christina writes in, no, I'm staying where I am for a while because my rent is extremely low. Taryn Comments, no, I own my home, no mortgage, so I'm staying put. That was a uh, message that was uh, sent loud and clear for a lot of folks who've uh, been in their dwelling for a while. They are comfortable staying there because they've figured out some fixed costs of where they're at. This topic is going to come from a conversation that Laura Bain's going to explore later in the show about maintaining the maintaining and creating online friend not online friendships adult friendships but the thread that i want to pick at this morning about an hour and a half before laura stops by for that conversation is online friendship and the people you might meet online the question is pretty straightforward at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook do you have friends that you have met online, yes or no? Do you have friends that you have met online, yes or no? Laura Bain, I'm going to give you first crack at this. I don't want to cannibalize too much of the conversation that you and I are going to have later in the show, but I am a big resounding yes on this. I have friends all over North America who I've met online. Yeah, you know, when you first posed this question this morning, Dave, kind of my knee-jerk response was, well, yes, of course I do. Um, and I think that's because I have so many connections that I've made online. But then when I really thought about the people that I talk to on a regular basis, now I may be completely forgetting about some really important friend in my <laughs> careful, life. Careful, careful. Um, I couldn't really think of any that had kind of started online without 
being followed by an in-person event. I would say there's people maybe particularly in the disability community that uh, I initially became aware of online and then developed a friendship with through an event. But for me, usually online friendships have not translated into deeper, more meaningful relationships. Now, that's with the exception of my partner, of course, who I met through an online dating site, but that's a little different, I think, partly because there is that expectation that you meet online and then that (laughs) is relatively quickly followed by an in-person meetup. I would say it's definitely fair to draw a line between the online dating and the online friendship. But I, I, I do find that over the years, in terms of mutual shared interests, uh, whether that be uh, hobbies, fantasy baseball, for whatever reason, I've just managed to make some friends all over all over the continent. And then social media has been a way to sort of leverage those relationships. Digital communication has been able to leverage those relationships. So I've been quite lucky mm-hmm. to have made uh, the majority of my friends in the last 10 years uh, online, uh, although I'm trying to shed friends right now. I have, I have too many, too many social obligations as it stands. Alex Smythe, what about you? You're a, you're a gen- someone who spent some time online have you made any yeah. friends online you know not any that i would still say i'm connected with like when i was younger especially in the heyday of online gaming uh yeah i certainly had online friends that i would like go and play with and, and connect with on a regular basis but i've kind of aged out of that kind of space that sphere so now when i'm going online if i'm doing something especially in gaming because that's really my my biggest interaction with like the online communities I'm playing it with people with my friends that I I know in in real life or are are pretty close proximity or maybe friends that have moved away. So it's like connections I've already had in person, but now we stay connected online. So uh, there's been that kind of shift through the years. I've I've stopped trying to I guess reach out and find new friends and and connect with new people online. Uh, you know those relationships can be hard to maintain sometimes and you you get busy so you kind of focus on the ones that you know are are the deeper connections and for me that seems to be the ones that i've i've had connections with in person prior to to connecting online and given one more word to laura here the maintenance of friendships is something that's going to come up a little bit in our conversation in a little over an hour on the show the the idea of not just creating new connections but maintaining and fostering those connections as well Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that social media and online can kind of be either a tool for making that happen or you know, kind of be the reason that things devolve, but we'll get into that in our chat <laughs> Yeah, later. that's, there you go, a little tease, a little tease with Laura. You got to hang out for that conversation a little bit later in the show in about an hour's time. Uh, let's call it about an hour and 10 minutes time. Laura Bain will uh, stop by for a column as well as an entertainment report in about 40 minutes. Lots of Laura Bain today on the show, just like there's lots of Alex Smythe, just like I want there to be lots of you getting involved in the conversation. Do you have friends that you've met online, yes or no, at Accessible Media on Twitter? at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or the old telephone, 1-866-509-4545, I'm going to give that to you one more time, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the conversation is all about literature. A new novel explores concepts of accessible design 
and the social model of disability. Author Kat Gordon tells you all about her latest book, Season 1, Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and streaming in audio format at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Author Kat Gordon is back with a new novel. It's called Season 1, Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. As an author, Kat writes through the lens of disability, mental health, and neurodiversity. And Kat can give you some insight into this brand new book. Hey, Kat, great to chat with you once again. Thank you for making time this morning. Again, thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here today. I always have so much uh, admiration for authors because of the uh, dedication and work that it takes to create a universe and then actually write a story inside that universe. What was the inspiration behind this new novel? Well, you know, it's interesting. I get asked that quite a bit. And I think because of when I wrote the novel, the inspiration was to kind of soothe my little fretting heart during the pandemic. Um, as a disabled person, accessibility is something that I find lacking at the best of times. And in the climate of the environment, there were a lot of messages like, only disabled people will be affected, only chronically ill people will be affected. And I was kind of tired of being an only. So I wanted to go somewhere. I escaped into a world where there was a galactic network where accessibility and accommodation were the norm. They weren't an afterthought. And I had been um, uh, familiar with the concepts of universal design and the social model of disability, where all body minds are thought of right at the beginning, not, oh, we, I guess we better figure out how to accommodate this person. So I love the space opera genre. What if I merged those concepts of inclusion in a uh, in a space adventure? What 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 would that be like? And uh, I just had so much fun writing this book. How did you build that universe? How did you build that galaxy? What was in your mind as you were putting together this universally designed sort of science fiction hope punk genre? You know, I think I just put pedal to the metal. Um, <laughs> it, it, I just thought, okay, now, um, if we have people who are blind, deaf, neurodivergent, who are selectively speaking, who are non-vocally speaking, and they're, and they're all on the same ship, and, oh, wait a minute, there's a galaxy. There has to be at least one universal signing language that people know. And I thought, okay, but what if they're in the middle of going somewhere and they need of um, mobility device, what did he do then? And I thought, okay, we're gonna have an accessible text stripe all down, down every corridor that you can sign at, text at, talk to, and poof, materialized in front of you could be a power chair, a hover chair, hearing aids. I just, I just thought of as many things as I could um, in, in, in this, in this galactic network where accessibility and accommodation were the norm. And that was fun. And even the accessible tech, a lot of it is sentient because mm. you want to play when you write science fiction. And all these 
the, the sentient tech have their own little social culture as well. Uh, I have a, a whole episode dedicated to Iris's guide bot, Clarence, called Clarence Has a Point of View. And it's really fun to see how Clarence views the world as um, an artificial sentient. <laughs> Go deeper into the characters, because now that you've created this universe, and it's a really neat universe, how did you go about bringing characters into the mix? What's your approach for developing great characters? You know, I, I think I was inspired by the many wonderful people in my own life uh, who um, kind of saved me. Years ago, I was hashtag disabled and alone. And then uh, I came into community over the last few years with people with all kinds of wonderful body-mind diversity. Um, so it wasn't really hard to for me to imagine, okay, we, are, we, have, captain, we have the captain. The captain's going to be deaf. Um, oh, the navigation team, how about it's a duo? One person's blind, one person deaf. Uh, Iris herself is visually impaired. Um, okay, I've got a character who doesn't have vocal cords like you and I do. So they have a, a different kind of uh, way of communicating. They can hear, but they'll sign. And then, and then the notion of, well, everybody's gonna know how to sign. And I just, I think I just wanted the, um, what I experienced here on Earth at this time to be reflected in um, in 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 this book, you know, I've I've been in such healthy community with different folks of, of all around like the world who um, have all different kinds of diversity within disability, and I think that was probably one of the biggest inspirations is how we all work together, how we have these unbreakable friendships, how we nurture each other, how we don't judge each other. Mm. That's where the hope punk comes in. So now you've got a universe, you've got characters, you've got intention. What kind of story did you want to tell? Well, you know, there's a joke that um, ever since I wrote my first book, um, I accidentally put too much dessert in it. <laughs> so I thought, if it's gonna be an authentic Cat Gordon novel, we have to talk about food somewhere. So food accessibility <laughs> and just food enjoyment is one of those things. Um, you know, I'm kind of a pantser. So that means that I like to write from the seat of my pants. Uh, it was a little different with Iris because I had to do a lot of research as well. I am disabled, but I don't have every type of body mind that exists in the world. So I had to do a lot of research. But I also thought I wanted this to feel like a streaming series. So it's written as 13 episodes and not um, chapters. And I put a writing prompt. I put a title, because I love titles, and I put a one-sentence writing prompt. And then was like, OK, this is your writing prompt. Go. It was like that. I didn't know what the book was going to be at all. I just knew that I wanted to write it and have fun writing it. Along those lines, what did you? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the the right the right way to phrase this question. But now that you've got your 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 plot in place, you've got your characters, you've even got a structure. Do you have an anticipation or a thought about maybe making a, se a season two on here? Absolutely. In fact, I've already started drawing the, um, I have in, in every episode, I have uh, sketches, uh, episode sketches, because I don't know, I just like pictures. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but but they're they're and I've I've created 13 episode uh, outline for season two, which I'm calling Iris and the crew verb, the noun, because I'm not giving away the title just yet. (laughs) (laughs) On the way out of here, I want to ask you two questions. You've talked about genre a little bit, whether it's space opera or whether it's hope punk. Maybe I, uh, uh, maybe I in error used the word science fiction before, but what's the freedom that that genre offers you as a writer? You know, first of all, space opera is part of science fiction, so you you you're good. You did fine there. Um, the freedom for me is um, within the space opera subgenre of science fiction. Is it gets to be more relational. It's about the characters, the friendships, the relationships. Yeah, sure, it's set in a setting, and there's pew 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 um, and adversaries and 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 that kind of adventure. Those adventure elements, but I like space opera because often it comes with characters that people can identify with, you know, um, whether they're fighting ableist space pirates or living their life on Earth. A lot of feelings are very real. The friendships are very real. Um, The love interests, you know, what you experience when you're falling in love. Um, It was really important for me to write something where readers could not only identify with the characters because they might share the same types of disabilities and such, but they might just have the same kinds of feelings when put in different situations. So that space opera offers me that. You mentioned before that you're a bit of a seat seat of your pants style of writer. What is what is your sort of day-to-day as you're going through the creative process? Do you designate a couple hours a day of strictly in front of the computer time? Or is it a little bit more hodgepodge as you're actually doing the act of writing? Well, that's a very good question. Um, uh, I have a, a chronic pain disability. So that means that writing every day, that's not going to happen for me. So I, I write when I can write. And even when I do write, I say, okay, you know what? The pain's getting too much. You have to stop. And I'm someone who's, um, I have spoken actually quite a bit about the um, you must write every day concept. I don't believe in that at all. You know, write when, when you're able, write when you have the energy to do it the books will still get done. So yeah, I, I write when the inspiration comes, when I feel like, yeah, I can I can write right now. And I always kind of take care to self-check. How's my body doing? Mm. Um, that's very important, I think. This is why I could never do what you do because I am extremely deadline-driven. Without deadlines, nothing will ever get done. I am the king of procrastination. Hey, Kat, what are the relevant points of contact for someone if they want to get their hands, eyes, or ears on season one, Iris and the crew tear through space? Okay, um, well, um, it's it's it could be ordered nationwide through many uh, independent bookstores. It also can be ordered through uh, Indigo chapters. Um, But, you know, uh, so you could try those places. I always say, hey, support locals. So if you can order it through your indie bookstores, you can. Mm -hmm. Um, And if uh, if for folks who are interested in just kind of following me and finding out what I'm working on, um, my website is catgordon.com. And that's C-A-I-T gordon.com. That, those are ways that you can um, find out more about me and where to purchase the uh, the book. 
Kat, congratulations on another successful book launch. Delightful to talk to you again. Keep up the really creative, amazing work. And uh, don't be a stranger. Let's catch up again down the road. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Dave. That's Kat Gordon, writer of the recently published novel, Season 1, Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. Season 1, Iris and the Crew Tear Through Space. Throw that in your Google machine. Throw Kat Gordon in your Google machine. Go to Kat's website. Keep that handy, and then go order and read that book. Coming up next, here's a question for you. How sustainable is pet food? You gotta feed them. All they ever wanna do is eat, it seems. Lawrence Gunther gives you a glance into the manufacturing process of the food for your furry friends. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You get to make all kinds of choices about your environmental footprint, your green impact. Certainly what you choose to eat matters. Sometimes you're doing more than just feeding yourself. You could be feeding a furry friend like a cat or a dog. And just like the sustainable food choices you have to make on what goes into your body, you have to consider things like raw materials that go into pet food, manufacturing, packaging, and transportation. So to help sort through some of those conundrums and details is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Morning, Dave. So Lawrence, why is sustainable pet food such an issue for pet owners? It's just the massive size of the uh, the sector, right? I mean, you think about all the cats and dogs that we own in North America. Dave, it's 64 million tons of greenhouse gases are emitted just by the processing and, and, and sourcing and delivery of pet food to our retail stores, 64 million tons. It's equivalent to about 13.2 million cars driving around in one year. Wow. What about the raw materials here, the raw materials that go into the food as well as the uh, where the manufacturers are getting this food from? Over the last 10 years, you've seen a big trend of small and medium-sized dog food manufacturers being bought up by large uh, food processing companies. So, you know, if you think about what goes into chocolate bars, potato chips, you know, fish sticks, anything that we eat in a can or a frozen package of some sort, there's byproducts that come from that manufacturing process, things that hit the factory floor, things that just can't, you know, qualify to be put into our food. What do they do with it? Well, they figured something else. They'll put it into pet food. So that's the big trend these days. But what it means is, you know, you have a giant plant now that's collecting the uh, the byproduct, the leftover, whatever it is, coming from the human food factories and then processing it and putting it into pet food and then shipping it out. So it's very centralized now. But to my brain, doesn't that constitute being reasonable with your resources? That food was going to go in the garbage anyway. Absolutely, Dave. It's, it's you know, it's zero waste concept, right? And, you know, any waste in manufacturing is profit loss. So this is, it's a good thing. I mean, you can't complain about that for sure. It, you know, then you have to look at, okay, what, what goes into those products? Where are those products and, and what else is being used? Because surely 
it can't just be, you know, leftover food that doesn't make it to our plate. I mean, it'd be great if it was, but that's not the case. Either. Right. What about the transportation side of the equation? Yeah. So you got products coming in from all sorts of places to the manufacturing, right? So where they're, say, processing fish, you know, the, anything that can't be used for human is is shipped over to the factory by, pro, you know, processing chicken. You know, we've heard a chicken meal. That's the skin and the meat and maybe the bone or maybe not the bone. Now, this gets a little gross, Dave, but that's not what goes into the pet food necessarily. What goes into the pet food is the chicken byproduct meal. So that could be the neck, the guts, the undeveloped eggs, the feet, but not the feathers. Don't worry, we're not feeding our dogs okay. feathers. Not not intentionally, anyways. A few might get in there, but so th there's a lot of product that, that comes from you know, manufacturing that just isn't suitable for human consumption. And that has to be all shipped from all these different factories all across North America to these pet food factories and then shipped to us at our retail. So there's a lot of shipping involved by rail, by truck, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of shipping. So that means more greenhouse gases. Right. So you're moving a lot of stuff around rather than maybe having one plant next to the other plant to, uh, to minimize some of that. What about, what about the packaging? Because certainly uh, when it comes to human food, uh, packaging is always a flashpoint and companies mm -hmm. to their credit are doing a bit of a better job with packaging, but there's still a lot of waste that I notice in my day-to-day -day interactions with packaging what could pet food manufacturers do better when it comes to packaging so their primary concern is how to produce pet food that's sterile that's gonna that's preserved that's not going to poison our animals that's going to have a long shelf life right and those seem so like those seem like very reasonable uh practices <laughs> absolutely dave so you know they're they're thinking oh, okay when we mix wet food, they mix it, they put it into a can, they put it into a package, they cook it in that can or jar or package, and they seal it up right away, and it's sterile. Or when it comes to, you know, dry food, you know, they make a nice dough, they spread it out on a pan, they push it through a, a high-intensity uh, pressurized cooker, it comes out nice and hard, they cut it with a die caster, they spray it with preservatives and, and food enhancers, and they put that in a, in a package. Either way, this stuff can last years, right? I mean, they know how to make the stuff so it has a long shelf life. So, you know, that's, that's nothing wrong with that for sure. You know, what the packaging they use, whether it's a can or a, a tub of some sort of plastic tub or a paper bag or a plastic bag, it's more about preserving and protecting and standing up to transportation, less so about, you know, reusable and renewable. A can for sure, you know, but as far as all the rest of it, there's not a huge... You don't see a lot of the stuff that's uh, the packaging is 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 reusable or recyclable, unfortunately. So here's where the onus flips to the pet owner, right? Obviously, you want industry to do their part, but the owner needs to do their own due diligence. How can pet owners find out what pet food is actually sustainable? You got to do a fair bit of uh, searching, right? So it'll show you what the the all the different things that are in your pet food and then you've got to figure out okay well what does that mean and uh, it, but really where does the uh, the source come from where was the grains the corn the you know where's the fruit the vegetables where is the uh, the meat coming from and the only way we'll know about that is if it's a third-party certification, something like certified humane or certified organic, if that's on there on the packaging, th that's a pretty good indication that the whole food chain, right, from farm to fork is, is a sustainable organic product. 
if you just read the packaging, it's say may this and may that, and, you know, pushing, uh, there's a lot of greenwashing Dave going on. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a challenge, right. To sort through all that. So for fear of uh, falling into the greenwashing conspiracy, what companies are doing things better or well? Dave, I, I read a lot of labels for this. I will visit a lot of websites <laughs> and I don't want to say one over the other because I can't be certain, you know, the language is so legalistic. It's so spin oriented in, in how they phrase this stuff. I'm not, you know, without doing a deep dive, like this is, this is a W5 kind of thing. This is a marketplace investigation thing. It's way beyond my skill set just from reading the, the package on a, on a, on a dog food or cat food package it, it, it's it's you're never going to figure it out they're very clever in how they 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 phrase all their you know terminology and, and how what's on your product in the end though dave i think if you bought something locally if you went to your butcher and i know people who do this and just say look you know whatever you can't sell you know in terms of chicken or beef or pork what's not going to make it just hang on to it you know they they don't want to throw that stuff out either and they can put it into a big bag and give it to you and you can then take it home and you can put it into the size that your animal needs for a meal. And then you can freeze that, right? You can freeze that. But you also have to then add the nutrients, you, the minerals, the vitamins, that has to be added. And you have to add some vegetables too, because you can't just feed your animal just pure meat every day. It's not going to be enough. So it gets pretty precise, right? You have to, and you can't feed your animal just uncooked vegetables because they, you know how an, a dog eats vegetables. They eat it, they get it in their stomach with all their stomach juices. Then they throw it up and they let it sit there for 12 hours and, <laughs> and, and decompose a little bit. But then they go back and eat it again. Yeah. That's the only way they can break down the fiber. Uh, so you, you need to you need to steam it a little bit. You need to cook it a little bit. Get that fiber breaking down. Otherwise, you're going to have that mess to deal with, right? So, but local <laughs> local food, you know, if, if you can find a local manufacturer that's working with a local uh, source uh, of protein and, and plant and uh, fruit and vegetables and and doing a good job, it's always better because all your distances are cut in half, and that means way less greenhouse gases. And, uh, you know, the less transportation, the better, right? Clearly, Lawrence Gunther is a dog owner. Clearly, he knows about this uh, this life of uh, smells and vomits and other kinds of expulsions. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, one more question here on the way out. You are the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther on AMI-audio. What's coming up on the next episode? Right now, if you tune in, you're going to learn how to identify the difference between a crow and a raven by Ooh. the look when you're the silhouette when they're flying over top of you or just by their call. So we can have, you know, you'll become a crow and raven call expert. We also have information on the latest all-terrain cane from David Epstein and what's coming out. He's, he just announced an urban terrain cane. So uh, no, it doesn't have any self-protection. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't pop out a little taser, taser or something like that. It's <laughs> just a white cane. And um, But coming up on Saturday at 2.30, Dave, we're talking to a young lady who experienced a lot of violence and crime uh, over a very short period of time. And how it affected her with PTSD and how she turned to uh, to the outdoors and fishing to heal. And it's quite an amazing story. Lawrence, sounds like a really interesting show. Thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. Keep That's it up. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors on AMI-audio. You can find that show Saturdays, 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. And you can find Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day. There's a storm brewing. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. 
Weakness in energy stocks weighed on Canada's main stock index yesterday. Toronto's TSX index closed 80 points lower at 19,743. New York's Dow Jones average gained 34 points and the Nasdaq added 40. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 436 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning, lower at 72.78 cents US. The CRTC is going to allow independent internet companies to sell service over the fiber networks of larger telephone companies in Ontario and Quebec. It's a move intended to revive dwindling competition for internet services and comes amid an ongoing review of third-party access to fiber networks. Unifor says Stellantis production workers have voted 60% in favour of a new contract with the automaker. The deal covers about 8,200 workers at Canadian Stellantis operations and mirrored deals already ratified with Ford and GM. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to the world of weather. Alex, people in Ontario are not going to know whether it's a raincoat or a winter coat kind of week. Yeah, maybe if there's something in between, a light uh, insulated uh, raincoat, that may be the best bet because uh, we're going to be looking ahead to the weather both tomorrow and Thursday as there is a storm system making its way into Ontario. So it's going to bring a mix of snow, of rain to different regions within the province. And for a large part of the province, it's going to result in freezing rain, especially in the central and eastern regions. So there is a large brand of freezing rain expected between Barrie and Ottawa. And so that's going to be right hovering just below zero with those wet conditions. It's, it's going to be really ugly getting in and around. For the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe, we're just so far south that the conditions are a bit warmer, so it's expected to be primarily rain, but at night, overnight, those temperatures may drop just below freezing or hover at freezing, so it may result in icy conditions, whereas more north, there will be more ice pellets in, in those uh, ice conditions. And this system is basically meeting up with two other fronts uh, as it makes its way through Ontario. So there's one coming from the west in the prairies and one coming from the south in the U.S., and that's going to linger in the area for a couple of days. So these conditions are expected to be quite rough as people are making their way both to work tomorrow and coming home from work on Wednesday. And then that morning commute on Thursday could be really treacherous, especially if the, the conditions drip, it gets a bit colder and there's ice on the road. So people should just proceed with caution as they make their commutes later in this week. Get the grippies ready. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up next, how do you choose the right university? Community reporter Anna Kim will share her firsthand experience. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Students are making some big decisions this time of the year. There are plenty of students who are considering what post-secondary school is going to be right for them. And of course, choosing the right school goes well beyond rankings and reputation. 
you have to find the place that suits you best. And certainly if you have a disability, you have to consider accessibility services. Anna Kim is a community reporter based in Wetaskiwin, Alberta, and Anna has some thoughts on picking the right school. Hey, good morning, Anna. Good morning. So Anna, take me into your life here. What's the process for you right now? How are you trying to pick the right post-secondary school? There are so many factors that go into choosing the right school. I mean, when you're in elementary and then maybe junior high and high school, those schools are chosen for you based on the proximity you are to them or, or where your parents send you. But this is the first really big choice about where your life is going to go is you have to take in so many different aspects, as in how far it is, what the school offers, how big the school is. Like personally, I'm coming from a very small town. And if I were to go to say the University of Alberta in their Northern campus, that is a school full of students that has, you know, is like the three times the population of my hometown. And as much as I love the programs that they have to offer there, and I would love to go there, I don't think I would become able to, be in an environment that is just that filled with so many people. And as I had to take into consideration their accessibility services. Mm -hmm. They do have a great wide range of, of many different services, but when I take into consideration the size and just the campus itself, I'm as much as I love it, I can't go there. So then I have to take into thought, well, maybe I'm better with a smaller school. And then I look at the smaller schools and I say, well, this pro this school is the that has the program that I want. And then after I find a school that is kind of small, you know, contained for me personally, coming from a smaller town background, I have to then look at, okay, well, what services can they offer for me? Because I do have some certain requirements that I need for, say, exams or navigating the campus is a really big one because all of the universities that I know are in other cities mm -hmm. except my hometown because small hometown. <laughs> so it's a completely new environment to, to navigate. And so then I have to go and discuss with people, well, what do they offer? And it can't just be like as much as I, I admire and I love administrators in the student services and accessibility areas, you really have to talk to students and mm -hmm. faculty of that mm -hmm. school, which is why open houses are a really amazing thing. But there's just so many things that you have to look at and kind of check all the boxes to say, is this the right school? And, you know, there's some things that personally I've had to waver on and say, well, I can give up a couple things or, or change a couple things to fit this school. But it's such a long weary process oh my goodness it just keeps going yeah there's, there's options it, it it's also a big decision right there's both decision fatigue because you're trying to think about so many individual components and then there's also choices like you said big city small city big school small school who's got my program what are the accessibility services forget even the question of accessibility on campus what's the general accessibility mm -hmm. of the city or the town that you're going to be moving to like do, do they have public transit i don't mean to be adding stress to your probably already very <laughs> stressful life but yeah first of all i'm just really impressed that you have the maturity to be considering these things because when i was picking a university i was like well i live in montreal mcgill's down the street they'll let me in <laughs> I know where the I know where the subway station is. Okay, that's where I'll go. Which was which which in the end, Anna, was a huge mistake because I didn't go to the place that was right for me. 
Mm -hmm. And I find a lot of students, I'm sure, especially those with with special needs or disabilities, right? They they can kind of struggle with, well, you have to move away from home. And sometimes, yeah, you don't want to move to a bigger university that's further away from home. And it's a really, really hard decision to make to then say, okay, I'm going to completely enter this new phase of my life and go be surrounded by numerous amounts of different people. There's really no way to ease into the university path at all. You're just kind of thrown in to say, here you go, fend for yourself. (laughs) And so then you really have to learn to rely on other people and rely on those accessibility services and and make sure that they're a good fit for you because some accessibility services are better for others than they are for you and i find that you really have to discuss with with that core group of people to say this is what you need this is the supports that you need and i mean i've been to a couple university open houses i've actually i've been to to one that i one fair that i was at where it was specifically for persons with special needs and as much as I appreciated the effort that went into it, the, the services didn't quite understand their their demographic. And so it was just all of the normal university fair type things with the really small brochures with really tiny print. Mm. And there were a lot of um, deaf individuals there who needed sign to to communicate, but they didn't have interpreters there. And so, you know, it made me look at the universities and say, well, I, I don't feel that this service is necessarily concrete enough for me because they don't even, they don't necessarily have the, the things to even cater to me at a job fair. Just, mm-hmm. I just need thick mm-hmm. print, you know, and that's just me. Other people need some, some more kind of deeper um, accessibility things. And so you, I just, it always comes back to you really, really have to go look at that core group and see what fits you. Which can be a little bit onerous, right? Maybe you don't want to go to Red Deer, Calgary, Edmonton, Lethbridge, and a million other places in between over the course of the next few months just to get a sense of what's going on on the ground. But as I read between the lines there, Anna, what it really sounds like is maybe universities and colleges need to be a little bit more thoughtful and preemptive in what they want to bring to the table precisely, right? If they're going to have a specialized university fair, then maybe they need to make sure if they're sending their office for students with disabilities, they clearly demonstrate and indicate that they get it and can clearly demonstrate what actual services are available on the ground. That, that's what I read between the lines on your last answer. Oh, yeah, that is that is hitting the nail on the head, really. that I think that is what definitely students need and universities need to understand is, yeah, understand your group, the group of people that you're going to talk to. If you're talking to just a general high school, you know, going to the high school, doing a university fair there, then I understand the the idea of, you know, the normal brochures and everything and, and talking with people. But yeah, if you're going to a specific accessibility university fair, you should cater to the demographic that you're in and say, well, we're going to talk to these people. Maybe we should have the, the accessibility center head the main person there because they'll know what's going on right mm-hmm. no one even no one even had that and i was honestly a little a little disappointed with how they did there i thought universities with their expansive 
knowledge and diversity in students would definitely be better than what my high school would have to offer, right? But that did, sadly, I mean, I had to do some more digging on a on personally. I couldn't really discuss it with the, the fair people there. Right, right. It, it took a lot of personal research to find the university that was right for me, as you know, as it as it should. But if you're going to a specific fair to discover what they have to offer in terms of accessibility, then they should be able to just let you discover what they have in terms of accessibility. Mm -hmm. Well, and I look forward to the ongoing development of uh, this next uh, chapter of your life as you go through the application process. But let's put a pin in that one for now and talk about electric cars, because certainly they're becoming way more common on the roads, but they are posing a pedestrian safety issue, especially for folks in the blind and low vision community. What have you been experiencing with electric cars on the road? I live in Alberta, obviously, and Alberta is filled with very loud trucks and <laughs> tractors. And during harvest season, there's just noise everywhere. And I have found that electric cars make no noise, which is very problematic when, personally, my vision, if I look at something too quickly, it doesn't register in my brain. And so if I'm crossing the street and I look both ways and I look both ways again, you know, we'll say specifically in a parking lot and I start walking and then this has happened. It actually happened yesterday in a parking lot that I was in up in Edmonton where I was crossing. And then all of a sudden there's just this vehicle that appears beside me out of nowhere. I swear it just was popped there. And I, what, I'm like, what in the world? And then I saw, yeah, it's, it's an electric car, and it just makes no noise coming up. And I didn't realize, but they had turned a corner while I was walking straight, you know, with the no peripheral vision. And they just kind of came up. They weren't paying attention. I wasn't paying attention until suddenly they were there. And because they make no noise, it didn't indicate to me to say, hey, look around. There might be something around you, because the two seconds ago that I looked, it was fine. What do you think manufacturers could be doing better here to address this issue? Um, honestly, I have no idea. I, I don't know if there's a way to make some sort of noise on on these vehicles. I don't quite know how electric cars work or what features they have or, or you know how they are. I don't know if there's sensors on the outside of the car to detect people because I know a lot of vehicles have that now, mm. electric or not. So if there was something like that to say, hey, there's you know someone coming up, blind, you know, blind or not, you need to know if there's people in your way. You kind of don't want to fulfill that whole ten points per person thing. Yeah, and yeah. and make sure. I sometimes it doesn't come down to the vehicle; it comes down to the person. So kind of the driver has to ensure that they're aware of their their surroundings. And then as obviously me as a pedestrian, I have to take that really extra step and make sure, okay look both ways, maybe three times instead of two times, and keep looking both ways as I'm crossing the street. Try not to kind of be in my own little world in busy cities. Yeah, I know some cities and some governments are talking about uh, noise standards, like actual noise emission standards on cars for precisely the issue that you're talking about. But it would be nice if the car companies themselves would realize that, hey, no one says we need the thing to roar its way through parking lots, but just give me a little, just give me like a little little indication, a little, little, little yeah, noise just, here. Little, little yeah, 
little teensy bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Uh, Anna, let's wrap this up on a quick uh, holiday fun note. The Octokos Christmas Market, I messed that up. The Okotox Christmas Market will take place at the Foothills Centennial Center uh, from November the 10th to 12th and 17th and 18th. What makes this market special? Oh, my goodness. I absolutely love farmer's markets because they are very, you know, casual events where you get to sample so many different things. And personally, as someone who is very tactile and there's so many different fabrics and little objects and it's a, a place where you can kind of just go and touch everything and see everything all in all one place and then someone over on one side may have something completely different from someone over on the other side and it's a great place to find just personalized gifts so something like the okotoks market where it's massive there is so much to see it's in two different locations and it i mean it's spanning over two weekends there's obviously a lot to see and i mean not only in the farmer's market but in okotoks itself right mm -hmm. It's just a great environment to be in. You get to meet so many people and and really find a bunch of kind of niche little things. And I mean, supporting small business, local business is really close to my heart because my family used to have a business in the town that I'm in. And I think that it is highly important to look towards the local shops before you go into any really big box stores. And this is a great opportunity to do so. Anna, thank you for this. Much appreciated. Have a great day. You as well. For more information on the market, by the way, themarketsquare.ca, themarketsquare.ca for uh, more information on that one. Anna Kim is a community reporter in Wetaskiwin, Alberta. In one minute, Laura Bain will share some thoughts on the new Netflix show, All the Light We Cannot See. But first, a couple of car companies are breaking up. Mike Dubusky tells you which ones in Tech Trends. If you've seen advertisements for new Honda or Acura EVs, the all-new, all-electric Prologue SUV. Well, those actually run on Ultium, an electric platform developed by General Motors. Honda and GM were going to work together and stuff, um, and they did. The, the Prologue and the ZDX are basically GM platforms running on Ultium. And Chad Kirshner of EV Pulse says the plan was to move that partnership down market. Basically, Honda and GM were going to work on building inexpensive EVs. But GM's own Ultium vehicles have had a challenging rollout, says Kirshner. The company recently delayed production on its planned electric Chevy Silverado and GMC Sierra. And I think that those challenges that GM has had with Altium has what caused Honda to walk away from their co-development deal with GM. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Turning to the world of entertainment, Laura Bain, All the Light We Cannot See, just dropped on Netflix over the course of the weekend. The story of a uh, World War II family with a blind child trying to escape Paris has uh, garnered quite a bit of buzz online. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually the number one most watched show on Netflix in Canada right wow. now. So very popular. Um, yeah, I had a chance to check this out. I checked it out last night. I only got through um, an episode in a little bit. I had some things I had to get to. It was hard to tear myself away, honestly. And I'm I'm looking forward to tonight when I can watch another oh, episode or two. You, but... you, have, you have more discipline than me. When I get hooked, I get hooked and everything else falls to the side. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was tough, but I thought it was so good. I really really enjoyed it. I realized that I had sort of 
I'd been aware of the book as having something to do with blind people and being a bestseller, but I'd kind of avoided reading it just because I tend to not want to expose myself to mainstream depictions of blind people in mm, literature mm. or TV or movies. Um, but I knew about all of the consultation that had happened on this and, of course, the casting. And I know you did an interview last week with the accessibility consultant. So I was open and excited to to watch this. And I think what really struck me was just how refreshing and empowering an authentic depiction of blindness is. Um, you know, there were times where I was watching it last night and I'm thinking, like, why am I finding this so why is this resonating so much for me? Why am I finding this so empowering? Because the main character, Maria, might just be doing something normal, like going out for a walk by herself or operating a radio transmitter. And it's just because it's so rare that we actually see that. We see blindness portrayed kind of without the tropes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it, I think so much of maybe what's resonating with you and why the show is garnering buzz, not just for the content, but for the casting of an actor who is indeed blind, has really mattered, I think, in the way the show has been received, not just broadly, but within the community as well. Because, Laura, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the buzz I came across this weekend was very, very positive about the portrayal of blindness and the casting of an actor who's blind. Yeah, absolutely. Me as well. I, I did try to dig into Buzz and I wasn't finding as much as I thought I would. I think that's just because it's only been out for a couple of days. But everything that I've read has been so positive about the two actors that play Maria. Uh, so that's Aria Mia Loberti and Nell Sutton. They're both new actors. And you. I think that knowing that especially is what blew me away because you wouldn't have any idea. And they just lent such an authenticity to the role. It really just had me thinking about, I mean, um, I know you had the accessibility consultant on, but how you need those multiple perspectives. It's not enough to just have an accessibility consultant, nor is it enough to just have a disabled actor. You really need to have both because people have such different experiences mm -hmm. of disability. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was just doing some reading about how uh, Aria and Nell were giving their feedback a lot of times during the production to say, oh, I, I wouldn't do it that way or I would do it this way. And I think that really came through. Well, Laura, Amy Amanti is going to do a full-blown review on the show next mm -hmm. Monday of the uh, first season of the uh, of the series, or at least of the series, I should say. So thank you for your initial thoughts on this. Before I say goodbye to you, a little bit of Juno news coming out this morning. Nelly Furtado has been uh, named the host for the upcoming <laughs> Juno Awards this spring. So things are going to get a little bit promiscuous, I suppose, on stage at the Junos. Yep, exactly. That was my update. So just been released. Uh, Juno's happening in Halifax in March of 2024. And we have learned that Nelly Furtado is going to be the host. So we can look forward to that. Uh, we'll fly like a bird to that one in the spring. Mm -hmm. uh, Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Well, don't have a great day yet. You're coming back in a couple of minutes. So don't go too far. Don't stray. Yep, sounds good. The broadcaster instincts. I was going to tell Laura to have a great day, but Laura's going to come back for another column in the second hour of the show. Lots of doses of Laura Bain today. Coming up after the break, the province of Quebec is unveiling its economic update this morning. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv as well as audio format at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Tuesday, November the 7th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show. Creating and maintaining friendships as an adult is difficult. How can you improve that? Laura Bain will offer up some ideas. And it's another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Alex Smythe, Alicia Yardley, and Karen McGee battle it out for the prize of Weekly Champion. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in Ontario, internal documents, internal government documents show Ontario may have to assume operations of two light rail transit lines in the city of Toronto. The warnings about the Eglinton Crosstown and Finch West LRTs come as municipal and provincial officials are considering new fiscal frameworks. The city of Toronto is running a $1.5 billion deficit. The Toronto Transit Commission's 2023 budget report estimates a net annual cost of $106 million to operate both lines. Operate both lines? The, the lines haven't started yet. Any day now, though, I'm sure. Any day. Over to Quebec. Quebec Finance Minister Eric Girard is scheduled to present the province's fall economic update this morning. Girard is expected to address issues of housing, homelessness and climate change adaptation. Girard is also expected to announce that some tax credits will be indexed to inflation. Funding for public transit is also anticipated. And over to the Atlantic region. Audited financial results for Prince Edward Island show the province recorded a surplus of $14.4 million for the fiscal year ending March 31st, 2023. The government had forecast a deficit for the 2023 fiscal year of about $66 million. Finance Minister Jill Burridge says the surplus came from higher than expected tax revenues. And on a weather note, Environment Canada has issued a special weather statement for parts of Newfoundland and Labrador. It says Upper Lake, Melville, Eagle River and Norman Bay could see up to 30 centimeters of snow. The weather agency says the snow is expected to start overnight tonight and last until Thursday morning. It says the snow is likely to mix with or change terrain along the coast with more accumulation inland. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson with a sports chat. It was a roller coaster. It was high drama. It was excitement at Scotiabank Arena last night as the Toronto Maple Leafs downed the Tampa Bay Lightning 6-5 to in overtime. But Brock, the final score does not quite tell the story of uh, what was a real clenching knuckle kind of game for Maple Leafs fans. Yep. I have to... I'll, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit and tell the audience that I... Last night sent this script to Dave after the first period of the hockey game when it was four to one. And the first line reads, really frustrating watching Ilya Samsonov and just play terribly. And then the Toronto Maple Leafs came back and roared and played really well in the last, you know, more than half of the game. I have to Dave, honestly, I've got to be honest and tell you, this team looks like they could 
beat the world, but then they look like the worst team in the league all in the same game and all in the same period. Like, it's just like, what what are we supposed to believe in with this team? Are they good? Are they bad? What are they? So for me, I need to see the Toronto Maple Leafs and their coaching staff and everybody give Joseph Wool more of an opportunity and more of a who's who's run. who's Joseph Wall? The goaltender, the well, the the cho- supposed one A and one B goaltender for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They they're trying to say that Ilya Samsonov, who's the other counterpart to this, and him are one A and one B. And I just don't see it. To me, Joseph Wool needs to be the guy to who plays like three out of five or four out of six. Give him a good run at this net as opposed to back and forth. Last night proved to me you need to give Ilya Samsonov a bit more of a rest because he is not cutting it for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, Brock, not to poke too many holes in your theory, how many goals did uh, Joseph Wall let in on Saturday nights? quite a bit yes i understand but more consistent more consistently he's letting in less than Ilya samsonov in my estimation so that would would be why i would suggest giving joseph wool a little more of a run than he's getting at this moment and and from time to time you're gonna have stinker games like like he did on saturday i get it but Overall, yeah, he, he let in five goals on Saturday, but I think I think the difference that you're trying to get into here, Brock, is that Ilya Samsonov has been in the National Hockey League for three or four years now. A couple of years in Washington, last year in Toronto, this year again with the Maple Leafs. It really appears like Ilya Samsonov is not really the key to the future of the goaltending position for the Toronto Maple Leafs, where maybe Joseph Wall is. I believe he's what 22, 23 years old, so he's right at that point in his career where it's time to figure out whether or not Joseph Wall can be the guy and maybe this poor play by Ilya Samsonov to start the year because it wasn't just last night he's been struggling for a huge chunk of the year maybe it's time like you say to let Joseph Wall take the pipes for a couple weeks see where he's at precisely if he can shoulder the load but you mentioned the team play has been a little bit abysmal and that really matters in this conversation because it's consistently inconsistent for this team now that they're coming out asleep to start games to start periods and then the only thing that seems to be saving them is Austin Matthews, their star forward, the Leaf star forward, who has more goals than the entire San Jose Sharks team this season. Uh, that was going to be my very next point to you. And and that that's a problem. When you come out of the game, come out of the game last night and you start with Matthew Nyes scoring a nice goal, getting them off to a good start, and then things just blow up where you just give give up and you're leaning very heavily on on you know your your big boys which you should but Kelly Yarncroke is showing a little bit of secondary scoring for the Leafs which is good but we need a little more than just leaning on Matthews Marner Nylander and again Nylander is impressing me he's he's running a lot of goals lately and I was pretty hard on him the end of last season beginning of this season but you need a little more depth than what you're getting and defensively at times you look like Swiss cheese, really, to be honest with you, and giving up as many goals. And they're they're among the league leading in most goals given up on home ice. That needs to be different. When you're on home ice, you should not be being booed off the ice after the first period of a hockey game on your home ice. That's just not good enough. Speaking of booing, uh, 
Edmonton Oilers fans this morning continue to be upset. More flowers for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, lots of tomatoes being thrown at the Edmonton Oilers. A 6-2 win for the Canucks last night as their hot start to the season continues. And Edmonton is floundering. And very, very quickly, questions are going to be asked of, wait, you, 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 if you're going to turn this thing around, when are you planning to do it exactly? Because you're going to run out of time here. Yeah, you are. And uh, head coach of the Edmonton Oilers, Jay Woodcroft, last night was tossed out of the game for what he says. He was asking a question of the official on a non-penalty call. There was no expletives, but emotions are running high. Uh, it's fine that your emotions are running high, but turn that into something positive turn that into like get the energy going there is no life in this team no fight no nothing it is horrible and you talk about it being early in the season and we kind of touched on this yesterday but we are digging digging ourselves deeper and deeper where Edmonton may not be able to dig themselves out of this unless they go on some kind of ridiculous run which is possible but I'm not seeing enough evidence right now that's going to uh, pull them out of this and if you're Vancouver Vancouver just keeps saying We'll just keep banking points, banking points. And it's it's becoming obvious that they are way more confident in what they're doing. And they've now uh, beat uh, Edmonton three times this year yeah. already. And that's that's a problem. It's pretty ridiculous that Connor McDavid has 10 points in 10 games and people are like, oh, he's having a down year. That just shows you how good Connor McDavid's been for the Oilers for the better part of uh, almost a decade now. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. Creating and maintaining relationships and friendships as an adult can be difficult. There are ways you can improve that. Laura Bain will offer some ideas. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A 2021 Stats Canada survey found that 40% of Canadians feel lonely some or all of the time. The Centre for Disease Control in the United States has research that shows loneliness can increase your risk of dementia, heart disease, stroke, and premature death. So... That no doubt underscores the importance of creating and maintaining friendships as an adult. Here's the thing. It's difficult. I almost cursed there. I almost cursed there. That, that's how difficult it is. I got emotional thinking about it. There are ways you can improve in terms of maintaining and growing friendships and building some new ones. And Laura Bain can offer up some ideas. Hello again, Laura. Hi, Dave. Nice to nice to chat with you again. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like the way that you set that up because it can be something that we develop and, and gain skills at, um, which is why I recently actually checked out a book uh, to learn a little more about friendship. Uh, I don't think, did you mention the name of that no, book no, off the top No, no, I've, I've got it right here, though. Uh, we Should Get Together, The Secret to Cultivating Better Friendships by Kat Velos. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I had just sort of identified this issue as well in adult life that maybe friendships weren't coming quite as easily as they had when I was a kid. And, um, you know, kids are really in these ideal environments for cultivating friendships. They're with a lot of people for the um, prolonged periods of time. There's a good mix of people. But as adults, we have to be more intentional because we're not in those conditions. And Velos is a user experience designer. And she said, well, you know, adult friendship really has a user experience issue, um, which I thought was kind of funny. So she identified some uh, elements that are key to developing friendship, and I can get into those if yeah, you like. Yeah, 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 jump into them a little bit here, because I think you mentioned one that jumped out to me there in terms of when you're a kid. You've got all the time in the world, right? Like, you've got recess, you've got class, you've got hockey yeah. practice, but you've got all the time in the world to foster a relationship, whereas I don't know about you, Laura, but as an adult, I don't have a lot of hours during the day to go make new friends. No, that's absolutely right. And uh, so frequency is one of those four elements that she identified. So thinking about how easy, like how available is your friend that, that you're trying to invest all this energy in? Do they actually have time in their life? Uh, because you are going to need some frequency in order to develop a close relationship. Yeah. Or you're going to need an, some intensive time together off the bat, which is why sleepaway camps are such a great place for making, making friends. Um, so the emphasis there with frequency is really on quantity over quality. And that may sound a bit odd, but it is about kind of putting in those hours together. So maybe it's something like running your errands together or just doing a quick like 20 minute phone catch up, but uh, kind of kind of putting in that FaceTime or that, that over the phone time. And then the other element is going to be proximity. And of course, that's one that kids have as well. So when we watch sitcoms and we see adult friendship, a lot of times they conveniently live across the hall from one another or they live in the building next door. Um, that's not really real life, but Villos highlights, highlights that you might think about making friends with people that live in your neighborhood because people who are within walking distance or an easy commute are going to ultimately make better social supports and you're going to be able to get that frequency in. So think about things like uh, joining a community garden or attending an event at a community center because those are those are going to be the people that are are within proximity. And it seems obvious, but I had never thought about that when thinking about making friends. Uh, the, oh, they also, oh the other... I, Laura, I, 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 not to cut you off, but, but I think about that a lot. As someone who doesn't drive and now lives in probably the sprawliest city in the entire country, I'm only making friends with people who live in East York or North York. That's it. Nowhere else. Like, yeah. at, least, at least I'm new friends. Like, I will go to the West End to go see my cousin. That's it. Gotta ask for a zip code when you first <laughs> yeah. meet someone. Ah, ah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, but like, but like, like in theory, making a new friend should be easy, right? Like, you mm -hmm. don't want to be necessarily like it's it's one thing to have an old friend who you've loved forever and like you cherish deeply. You will go yeah. to the end of the earth for them. But if I've only known you for a week, I'm not going to go to Mississauga for you. No, that's it. And we can maintain friendships over distance with friends that are established, but it is a lot more difficult with a new friend. And all of these are just key elements, but they don't all have to be present. They don't all have to be present like in equal measure. But um, yeah, so another is going to be compatibility. And that comes down to chemistry. We can't really control that, but also our shared interests. And that's only important if you're looking to do shared activities with your friends, which many of us are. Um, and 
we can have friends who are different from us, but there has to be a level of mutual respect. So it's okay to have different different values and different you know, backgrounds, but we need to be able to have respectful dialogue. And then the last element is commitment. So friendship really runs mm. on commitments. And, um, you know, Velas identified that lack of follow through is one of the biggest reasons that friendships don't succeed today. And I, I think we've sort of have a culture of flakiness or people saying, oh, I'll be there in spirit at the last minute. A oh, lot of us me. have encountered that. That, that. Is, that is 100% yeah. me. And there's reasons that we do that, being stretched too thin or having a degree of burnout. But on the flip side... Uh, genuinely genuinely lot... not liking people? Well, that's fair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the flip side, it makes it a lot more impactful when someone actually does show up. So that's the way that you can deepen a friendship is to um, uh, show caring for someone. And one suggestion that I've implemented, it might sound a little funny, but um, remembering details of people's lives and even setting reminders on your phone. So if someone uh, tells you they have a job interview coming up, set a reminder on your phone to wish them luck that oh. morning. Oh, yeah, and I had someone do that with me recently, and I feel like it was sort of the moment that we took it from an acquaintanceship to more of a friendship. They checked in on me on a day where I had something happening, and um, it was just really touching. But don't just rely on your your memory because, you know, if you're like me, you will not remember to do that. I really like that, and that actually sort of rushed a memory into my mind of uh, when I was going for a surgery in 2019 that a friend of mine, who I had not explicitly mentioned the date to uh, her at any time recently, but I had mentioned the date initially, that morning she sent me a note just to be like, hey, I know you're going in for surgery today, you know, like wishing you well. And it's, it's you're right. I like From that moment forward, I was like, oh, this isn't some casual acquaintance. Like, this mm-hmm. is a friend. Like, this is a real friend who who actively took the time to remember, consider, and take action. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you uh, said there, too, about common interests, shared interests, because th- there needs to be a certain common language that you speak with your friends, whether that be about shared interest in music. You know, Alex Smythe was mentioning video games before. I'm a gargantuan football fan. And the fact is a lot of my old, old, old friends don't really care about football. So one of my new things is if I'm gonna make a new friend, you better care about football because that's what I wanna talk to you about. Yeah, that's been my experience. You know, I I have a couple of friends where we really don't have a lot in common anymore. And sometimes you can look at that and you can still keep those people in your life. You can still maybe touch base with them once a month on the phone, but it's okay to take a step back from those relationships. Maybe that we formed earlier on, you know, as kids when it was really all about proximity and look for friendships, you know, where you, where you do have more interests in common. Uh, Laura, I do want to pose a question here about uh, the nature by which you might approach a new friend, right? Maybe I have established this football relationship with someone, but now I want to push this thing forward into friendship. What are some of the things that Velos is saying about taking that next step from someone you make small talk with or someone who's an acquaintance to becoming an actual friend friend? Right. Well, the key is really about reaching out. And one suggestion, another one that I followed was to make a list of people that you'd like to be friends with. And then also make a, yeah, again, it sounds laugh. I shouldn't laugh, but it sounds so kind of childish. Like, I want you to be my friend. 
Yeah, exactly. It sounds funny. Make a list of all the excuses you have for not reaching out to that person. And then you just sort of have to do it. And there is a level of vulnerability that's involved. But, um, you know, I think for the most part, especially if you can find something to connect on, like a shared interest, people are receptive. And if they're not, then they're clearly not looking to make friends anyway. And you can just know that and, and move on, which is helpful as well. Laura, dive a little deeper into that vulnerability side, because I think that's one that's probably a bit of a delicate balance. How vulnerable do you want to be the first time you're talking to someone? But being vulnerable is something that can bond you to somebody in a real hurry. Yeah, that's true. And one thing that Velas talks about is really about how deeper conversations are key to developing friendships. Um, and so you want to move away from small talk, which is, I think, where a lot of relationships sort of go to die and we fear running out of things to say that's common and that can happen with small talk because you can only say so much about the weather um, but learning to ask people follow-up questions um, you know as reporters we sort of have this question tell me more which is really a good one when someone tells you something mm, like, oh, mm. I, I did this thing, oh, tell me more about that. Um, and yeah, being vulnerable ourselves, we have a fear of oversharing sometimes, but giving a little bit more of a vulnerable answer when someone asks you a question can really, um, can really let them in. So if someone says to you, oh, how was your weekend? Instead of saying good or uh, yeah, great, I went apple picking, you could say something like, yeah, it was good. I went apple picking and that is really meaningful for me because it's something that my family always used to do when I was a kid. But you know, now I have all of these apples uh, in my kitchen and I have really no idea what I'm going to do with them. And that just <laughs> opens up the door for so much more conversation than you might have just had otherwise with a kind of limited answer like saying oh good you know yeah you have to be willing to advance the conversation and not turn it into a monologue but advance the conversation i love what you say about asking questions what do you think how did that make you feel tell me more what did you learn from that i know those questions on paper can sometimes look a little aggressive but it is a great way to open people up in, in these conversations as well <laughs> laura one last thought here on the way out the door there's a disability slant to this because loneliness and disability unfortunately are connected. There's a lot of isolation that goes in into this conversation around friendships, relationships, disability, isolation. How would you apply the disability lens to this conversation? I already mentioned the inability to drive is a bit of a limiter. It is a limitation in terms of fostering and building great relationships, especially in a sprawly town. How would you apply the lens of disability to this? Yeah, I don't envy you that. And I think sometimes we can think about that if we have a choice in terms of where we move. I'm lucky to sort of be in central Halifax. Um, but yeah, I was really reflecting on a lot of the ways that I feel socially disadvantaged as a partially sighted person. The biggest one probably being the inability sometimes to recognize people's faces. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> or even like know who is talking to me. I have gotten better at saying who's like, who is it? But sometimes that can just feel really, really awkward. And I felt bad recently. My partner actually mentioned to me when, uh, like, he happened to be walking to school with me and he said, oh, someone waved to you from across the street. And I felt so sad because I thought, well, what else, <laughs> what else am I missing out on? So I think as people with disabilities, we really have to use all of the advantages that are available to us. And for me, I have found that 
sometimes moments when people offer assistance can make a real connection point. And that goes against my instincts of having to be fiercely independent. Mm. So I really need to check myself. If someone has offered me some assistance, even if it's not needed, just not having that knee-jerk reaction of saying, oh, no, thanks, I'm fine. But using that as an as an opening point or moments where I might need assistance with something and I could rely on technology or other resources. And those things are great. Like, yes, maybe I could reach out to CNIB and get an orientation and mobility specialist to help me learn the route. But I could also consider just asking someone who's um, who's going to the same place if maybe we could travel together or maybe we could exchange phone numbers so I could uh, reach out to them when I'm on my way. And mm. that was something I found with the school program I'm in, one of my strongest friendships that I formed was actually um, someone that had offered me some assistance and there was a an event, a social event that was planned and I asked them if they would pick me up, uh, which was felt very vulnerable because um, you don't want to be a burden, but they were happy to and it led to uh, an opportunity for making a friend. I'm still struggling with kindness, even with people that are friends or close to me. I, I still struggle with that one too because of that vulnerability that you're talking about. But there's been quite a lot of psychological academic study that when you ask someone to do a favor for you, that will actually bring you closer together as humans because people want to do favors. They want to be perceived as kind. Yeah. And, you know, one thing she also talks about that really struck me was the different types of support we can can give people. And I think I've felt a little bit inadequate sometimes as a friend because I can't always give tangible support, like with helping someone move or going to pick up groceries for someone. But as people with disabilities, we have lots of types of support that we can offer, like informational support um, or, you know, emotional support and just yeah. being there to, to listen to someone. So remembering that you might be asking someone for a favor to pick you up and travel somewhere together, but you also have lots of support that you can offer to someone as well, regardless of your ability status. Yeah, I've never said, uh, I, I've always said, I'm never the person to call when it's time to pop the champagne bottles and celebrate. But when you're having a bad day, give me give me a call and I'll be the grief eater for sure. Uh, Laura, yeah. thank you for this really thoughtful conversation. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. That is Laura Bain talking all about creating and maintaining adult relationships. Laura's out there in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe has some thoughts and questions around Quebec's plan to raise tuition at universities for, for out-of-province students. He's going to bring that one to the roundtable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, while you were out in Europe, the province of Quebec was making some waves around university tuition. 
Yeah, Dave. Uh, specifically, they were looking to target the English language universities in Quebec. So the biggest among those are Concordia and McGill by raising the tuition uh, prices for out of province students who look to attend. The current rate is set around $9,000 per year. They're looking to increase it to $17,000 a year. And the head of these universities all met with the premier and the head of higher education and kind of tried to propose alternatives, but the province has since rejected those proposals and continued to move ahead. So this, along with the conversation earlier with Anna Kim, it all brought about idea of what factors contribute into where we studied and where we went to school. So I wanted to bring that topic to the round table. So Nisreen, we'll start with you on this one. So what factors went into your decision of where you decided to study? The first thing that I uh, looked at was academic requirements. I think that was an important one when I was applying to school. And then um, obviously tuition. Tuition is so insanely expensive and it just gets worse and worse and worse every year. Um, like when my sister is still going, uh, graduated actually this year and her tuition was so much. So I just feel like you have to break the bank to get a good education. And uh, it's difficult. A lot of people are in debt. Um, but I would say that academic requirements was my very first on the top list and then tuition. <laughs> Nazreen was just trying to get in, just trying to sneak yeah. under that bar to get in. Uh, yes. Weren't we all? Uh, <laughs> Ramya, what about you? What were the what were the key factors when you were deciding where to go? And, and by the way, it should be noted that I think all four of us ended up studying in our home province, right? You guys all studied mm. in Ontario. Yeah. And I studied in Quebec until I did my college degree uh, well after university. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was just trying to find programs that would fit me. I, I think that my priority wasn't really going for post-secondary for the reasons why you should go to post-secondary. I wanted to move out. I wanted to start my uh, living on my own life. And mm. I originally wanted to go to Trent University in Peterborough just for that. I was like, oh, the programs there sound fantastic. I don't know if they were fantastic or not. I just <laughs> the, thriving, the thriving <laughs> metropolis of Peterborough, Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyways, I ended up staying local um, at uh, what used to be Ryerson University. And I think that the the priorities I had were to find out about the, the access department and figure out, you know, just through word of mouth mostly and through some of the, the advocacy that I have learned uh, to to figure out what kind of supports I would get. Because I knew the the difference in environment the difference in learning um not learning ability but like how you would learn the difference in the kind of support you would get because you're going from just like a one tiny building of a high school into uh the abyss which is post-secondary you know giant classes yeah. uh, profs who don't know your name and um and everything done independently whether it's paying your tuition or getting your textbooks or uh, ex seeking extra support for classes or just figuring out everything was more of an independent endeavor than anything I'd never known before. So I was really nervous about that. Um, so the priorities I had were to just find out exactly how I can lock in some of these supports. And eventually I ended up in college to, to make life a little more um, sensical for me, like yeah. you know, Seneca were smaller classes, right? Things like that. Where's Seneca located in the city? 
other two, I guess maybe three. Anyways, one's uh, the Newnham campus at Don Mills and Finch, and the other one is attached to York University, and that's okay. the one I went to. Okay. Yeah, because that was that was that was going to be my follow up questions here. Because Zreen, you were making your way from Mississauga to that campus, uh, Rumya yes. from Scarborough. Alex, you also chose to stay pretty local, correct? Like you didn't you didn't go too far. I, I I went somewhat far. I decided to actually choose the the thriving metropolis of Peterborough, Ontario. Oh, I forgot, that. I, nice. forgot, I forgot that you started yeah. in Trent. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, originally, I actually did want to go out of province. I I was I had my eye on the University of Calgary. I wanted to study medieval history, and then I quickly kind of came to my senses, and my parents kind of talked me down and realized like. Okay, maybe there may not be a, a true uh, career if you study medieval history. There's not going to be a lot of options available for you. So hey, then I, hey, hey, come on. Carnival Barker at the Renaissance Fair is a career, Mr. and Mrs. Smythe. Yeah, exactly. In medieval times. I mean, it's just in Toronto. Come on. Just think what my degree yeah, could have done. Go Dragon. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I ended up going to Trent University and I had a few different options. And, uh, you know, I I went there because I really loved the small size of the school because, as you mentioned, Ramya, it's like it's overwhelming, just the sheer volume of, of students. And I remember doing some of those uh, uh, university tours and going to like Glorier and Brock and things like that. And even McMaster and just being like, OK, like when when classes came out, like you're swarmed by people, whereas Trent is one of the smallest universities, at least in Ontario. I, I felt it was easier to navigate. It, it was something I, I didn't quite realize why I was choosing the it for mm. the navigation, but uh, it, it was something that really was important for me, and that's where I ended up. And it, they had a great program. Yeah, I Unfortunately, chose... I didn't complete it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I chose local. I chose McGill University. They let me in. I was a Quebec resident. I knew exactly where it was. I knew the metro system. I knew the bus system. I made a choice out of comfort and then did not consider at all that, you, that McGill University was not going to be the right school for me. It was too big. Mm -hmm. It was too sprawling. There was too much going on. One of my great regrets in life is actually not going to a smaller university, maybe going to Bishop's University in the province of Quebec in Lennoxville or maybe even going outside the province. But where this conversation all starts is an important distinction. There's been a lot of headlines about Quebec raising the rate for out-of-province students. Quebec has always charged out-of-province students significantly more than local students. Uh, when I went to McGill, my annual tuition, not counting student fees, was about $1,500 for the year. Uh, in 2017-2018, the tuition was about $2,400 in Quebec. So Quebec has always charged local students significantly less than out-of-province and international students. So one of the reasons I chose to stay is because it was very uh, cost-effective. There's no doubt about that. And I lived at home, which was uh, kind of a nightmare in the end. I should not have done that. Mm -hmm. But it was, again, very cost-effective. I got out of university with uh, zero debt on my, on my bank account because I stayed at home and I went to a really good school that wasn't the right fit for me at a very, very low price. Alex, thank you for bringing this topic to the table. You're part of the news quiz in the next segment. Nizreen, you have a lovely day. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI? Kelly and I are talking to nutritionist Julia Caranches about habits that will help us feel energized for the day, a.k.a. good morning habits. Mm. Uh, also, yeah, I don't have any of those either. Uh, also, what do kids wish their parents knew? This is the broad question oh. we're asking on our parenting segment with Lucia Belafonte. I think she's talking about school-age children, but I got a lot to say just even where I am now. And 
are there pets that need more consideration in the winter than others, Dave? I'm thinking, you know, dogs that you take out, but there's a lot more to discuss around this with Dr. Danielle Johnkind on our Ask a Vet segment. Very good. Ramya, have a great day. Thank you, you too. That's Ramya Emuthan with the co-host or uh, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up next, it's the weekly news quiz. Alex Smythe, Alicia Yardley, and Karen McGee will battle it out. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's the last segment of the show on a Tuesday. Get your motor running and the competition juices flowing. It's the weekly news quiz. Saying hello to today's competitors, starting with co-host Alex Smythe. Hello again, Dave. And Human Resources Department Representative Alicia Yardley. Hello, Alicia. Hello, happy to be here. And when it comes to competition, there are very few people as competitive as Karen McGee, AMI Content Development Specialist. Hello, Karen. I'm not sure what you're trying to say there, Dave, but I'll take it. Saying Karen likes to win and does not like to lose. And how you win involves the rules of the game. There are three rounds of questions with three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice questions. If you answer the question without hearing options, you get two points. If you need the options, you get one. If you get it wrong, we just keep moving on and on and on. The order of contestants was drawn by producer Paul Daniel. The order will be Alex, Karen, and Alicia. Alex, round one is all about international news. A South Asian country declared that all foreign citizens living there without proper documents had to leave the country by November the 1st. What country was it? Can I get the options, please, Dave? Is it Pakistan, India, or Bangladesh? I'm going to go with India. That is incorrect. Karen, a chance for a steal. Pakistan or Bangladesh? Bangladesh. That is incorrect. Alicia Yardley picking up a default point right off the top. More than one million Afghans have been living in Pakistan illegally. All right, Karen McGee, an opportunity with question number two of round number one. An African country plans to end visa requirements for all African visitors by the end of the year. What country is it? I'll take the choices, please. There's a lot of countries there. Is it Mali, Kenya, or Uganda? I'm going to say Mali. That is incorrect. Alicia, is it Kenya or Uganda? I'm going to say Uganda. That is incorrect. Alex Smythe picking up the default points. The international news stories are tripping everybody up here. Visa-free travel within the continent has been a goal of the African Union for the past decade. Alicia, here's one more from the international file, and this one's coming to you. A South American country became the first to break diplomatic ties with Israel last week. What country is it? Hmm, can I get the options, please? Is it Colombia, Ecuador, or Bolivia? Ooh. I'm gonna say Ecuador. That is incorrect, Alex, a chance for a steal. It's a Bolivia. 
That is correct. One point for Alex <sighs> Smythe. Colombia and Chile have Chile have also recalled their ambassadors from Israel. So after one round, Alex is at two. Karen uh, Karen is at Zippo Zilch Donata, and uh, Alicia is at one. Although Karen put out a great sigh there, so that counts for something. At least <laughs> we'll give you a bonus point for that one. In the second round, all of these questions are going to be related to sports. And Karen, you get the first crack at this one. Another athlete has become a billionaire, according to Forbes. Who is it? Oh, I heard this, and then I'll take the choices, and I'll know it when I hear it. Is it Lionel Messi, Magic Johnson, or Phil Mickelson? It's Magic Johnson. That is correct. Johnson follows Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and most recently, LeBron James on the list of athletes who are billionaires. So one point for Karen McGee. Alicia, this next question comes from the baseball world. The Texas Rangers won the World Series by defeating the Arizona Diamondbacks last week. Which Rangers player won the World Series MVP? Oh, um, can I get the options, please? Is it Corey Seager, Adolis Garcia, or Marcus Simeon? Uh, Simeon? That is incorrect. Alex, a chance for a steal. Seager or Garcia? Was it Seager? That is correct. Seager also won the World Series MVP a few years ago with the Dodgers. So that puts Alex at a total of three points. Chance for a commanding lead here, Alex. The Laval Rouge Or women's rugby team successfully defended their national title with a 32-13 win over the weekend. Who did they defeat? Not a clue, Dave, so can I please have the options? Is it the University of Lethbridge, the University of Alberta, or the University of Victoria? I will go with the University of Victoria. That is correct. Laval has won three of the last four championships. So after two rounds, Alex has the commanding lead with four points, but Alicia and Karen are still in the game with one point each. So don't despair just yet because all these questions in round number three are related to general news stories from the last week. Alicia, you get the first crack at this. Last week, Ryan Smolkin died suddenly at the age of 50. He was the CEO of a Canadian food franchise. What was the name of the company? Uh, I will take the options, please. Is it The Burgers Priest, Smokes Poutinery, or Extreme Pita? Uh, Smokes Poutinery. That is correct. One point for Alicia Yardley. Smolkin died from post-surgery complications. Alex, you actually need this question if uh, you want to put a nail in everybody's coffin here. Last week, a food delivery service began testing warnings about bad service if customers did not tip. What food delivery service is testing this warning? Um, I'm going to just uh, go for a wild swing and say Uber. Uber Eats? That is incorrect. Karen McGee, I heard you make a noise. Do you want oh, the options? You're not supposed to hear that. I, did you I'm going to say DoorDash. <laughs> that is two points for Karen McGee. That's a big one. DoorDash is asking customers to see the extra money as an incentive for good service rather than a reward. Karen, that's a big one because you pick up two points for that without asking for the options. And now you're right on the heels of Alex Smythe. Alex at four points, you with three, and Alicia with two. So we got a we got a good we got a good game here with question number three of round number three in play. Okay. So Karen, this question's going to you. Online language company Preply has issued a report about the fastest talking cities in Canada. Forget the fastest. What city 
talks the slowest. I was going to say, it can't be Morseburg because I live here. Um, uh, I need to shoot for the dark, so I'm going to say... But you don't have to. You can tie Alex here if you want to. Well, I'd rather I'd rather win outright. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to say Vancouver. That is incorrect. Oh. Now, Alicia, you have the opportunity to tie Alex if you do this without the options. I'm going to need those options. But, but then you can't win. You're handing Alex the game. I am handing him the game, but I need the option. Okay. All right. Was it Montreal, Calgary, or Toronto? Calgary. That is incorrect. What? Alex, was it Montreal or Toronto? And if you don't get this, I get the point. Yeah. So I, I think I'm going to probably end up giving you the point, but I'm going to go Toronto. That is correct. It is Toronto. Oh, really? Some, somehow Toronto is the slowest what? talking city. According yeah. to the report, Torontonians spoke at 149 words per minute. By contrast, the fastest talking in city in the country is Edmonton with 210 words per minute. So what? 61 words more per minute out of Edmonton than Toronto. So uh, with that, yeah. the winner is... Alex Smythe, well done, sir. Thank you. Yeah, pretty pretty well done, considering I've been out of the country and out of the continent for the last week, so I, I haven't really heard any of these news stories. <laughs> Show off. Just playing the guessing game. Okay, let's do the uh, tiebreaker question just for the heck of it. And as you guys know, there's a new way of doing this. We're playing closest to the pin. So... I'm going to give you a question, and your answer needs to be closest to the actual number. So Elon Musk bought Twitter last year for $44 billion. There was a report last week about the company's current worth. What is the company worth? What is Twitter worth now, Karen, a little bit over a year after Elon Musk bought it? $19 million. Okay. I, mm, uh, Alex? I'm gonna say 22 million. Uh, uh, you, uh, okay, Alicia. I'm gonna say 44 million. Uh, I have no idea oh. why all of you are saying million billion, rather billion. than billion. Oh, billion, billion is what I meant. Yeah. 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 So, so, so Karen McGee hit it on the pin. Nineteen billion dollars is. Uh, I was what it's this worth. close. A little bit, yeah. I did. You know, I was billions, billions, billions. Yeah, oh. so, yeah, just a couple zeros here, a couple decimals, a billion here, a billion there. Soon you're talking about real money, to quote Ross Perot. Alex, have a great day. Karen, you have a great day too. Alicia, thank you for being a good sport as always. Thank you. That's another edition of Now with Dave Brown in the books. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv or live streaming audio at amiplus.ca or on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Now with Dave Brown in the search bar. You'll find it. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. 
Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.